What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning best-selling taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards, both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, Go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Monday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. Joining me tonight, someone who just blew it out of the water. Uh, the last time he was here, he's just the the hockey wonder kid that I've been trying to get back on um, in the last little while, but he is finally back. He is um, post-finals, I want to say. Like, this all makes me sound like a very old human being, but um, Harmon Dial makes me feel like a very old human being at this point. What's going on, man? Pretty good. How are you? I mean, yeah, I, I get that a lot. I make a lot of people feel old in this industry for sure. Well, I didn't know. I remember when we, because we've only done one, I think, yeah. before tonight. And um, I, I, I don't think when I originally reached out to you that um, I put two and two together on just uh, your actual uh, age and your uh, your career status right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I had just... So I just finished first year of university, um, just recently turned 19, which makes me legal in BC, but down in the States, um, I'm, I'd still, I'd still qualify as a minor. Uh, I've been fortunate enough Shit. to, I am 10 years older than you almost. I'm 28. Damn. Ugh. Damn. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just a situation where I got started in the industry, started writing at a very young age and was fortunate enough fortunate enough to get a couple breaks and uh the, the thing is most people like for me i started i must have written my first article when i was like 13 so most people inevitably start blogging or, or podcasting or or whenever usually in their 20s so i pretty much had a 10-year head start on everyone else which is why i'm in this position now as opposed to being in this position when i'm 28 or 29 we're also just really good. So um, I'm glad I'm ahead of the curve getting on this podcast, opening up the platform more because, uh, like I said, I enjoyed our last conversation and I'm glad we were able to make this work. How did you do um, on your finals? I did pretty well, all things considered. Okay, good. Yeah. All things considered. What is that? That's an interesting end to that. Um, all things considered. Okay. It's pretty good. It's pretty good pretty good yeah. i feel like you're, you're yeah yeah I, I think you're underselling it um cool man well what are you even taking what is what are, what are you studying in college right now um this might come as a, as a surprise to most people but i'm actually doing nursing 
as sort of oh. like, yeah, I'm looking for this. That's just sort of like my backup career kind of option. Um, because as we know in the, in the sports industry, um, on the media side of things, it's so, it can be really difficult to find your, your niche to get a full-time position. So for me, I thought it might be a good idea. I actually got some good advice from a lot of different people on this. They suggested that I try and find a degree or some sort of background in another field that I could just have as a sort of fallback option if it doesn't work out in the sports industry. So that's what I'm working on right Those now. Those are wise people. That is, because um, I have a day job and I have, I've been in this industry full time and I've been in it part time and everything else. I would definitely say having some sort of not even fallback, but just having outside ventures and just uh, being able to navigate um, those waters where you're like, I'm not pigeonholed into one particular career path and I'm just kind of screwed if it doesn't work out, um, especially when you're young. And it's just, it doesn't hurt to expand your horizons and to be able to have a diverse skill set. So um, I think you're making a good decision on that front. But rather than continue with uh, more career advice on this podcast, Harmon, uh, we should probably move on. We're recording this as the Bruins and the Blues are playing game four. Um, the Blues scored quickly with O'Reilly, and then <sighs> the Bruins came back. And as we're done recording this tonight, it'll probably be seven to one Bruins. And oh, never mind. Uh, the Blues just scored, so it's two one. I've really got to stop turning my head because I just saw it, but I also just saw it in my per- in my uh, peripheral vision. So whatever. But anyway, um, that's all happening. But as it's happening, I wanted to touch on kind of what's going on in the first couple of games of this series. Um, going into tonight, the Bruins are up two one. They blew the Blues out. Um, couple nights ago and um i want to start there what is um i guess what in particular happened in game three for you that stood out for the bruins well for starters i think they really dominated the neutral zone game i I mean you looked at some of the neutral zone numbers as far as uh blues zone entry defense and and the bruins were consistently able to create controlled entries into the offensive zone which is to say they were able to lug the puck into the offensive zone. And whenever you can do that and create opportunities off the rush, well, then you've got the other team on the back foot. And you look throughout the series and um, and you parse through some of the numbers. And what's really stood out, especially when you look at the St. Louis's Blues profile, is that they tend to do a lot better when when they're the ones creating the bulk of the chances off the rush and that, and whoever's really won the neutral zone battle has dictated the terms at even strength. So in game one, for instance, Boston blew St. Louis out of the water in that regard, and they came out on top in, in game one. But then in game two, of course, St. Louis, I think I'm looking at it right now, they, they outchanced the Bruins 8-4 to four on the rush. And of course, they, they, the Blues were very, very good in game two, thoroughly controlled um the the play in that in that one and then you go back to game three and and the and the blues just not able to maintain tight enough gaps in the neutral zone and you you see a little bit of um you see a little bit hopefully in game four i think what you're going to see is someone like vince dunn draw vince dunn draws into the lineup he's got quicker feet someone who's historically been pretty good at defending in the neutral zone so i think from from the Blues' perspective, really dictating the terms at 
at uh, through the neutral zone was an issue for them in Game Three. And of course, you you give that Boston power play any sort of opportunities, and throughout this entire postseason, they've just been so dominant. And again, w- with the Bruins, it's been speed on their entries that's enabled them to create uh, a lot of their goals on the man advantage. And so, of course, heading into Game Four, it's a sort of cliche thing where you say stay disciplined and and you can't take unnecessary penalties but that's more true now than it ever is and you saw in game three just how potent the Bruins offense is and and it certainly doesn't bode well for the Blues to see Patrice Bergeron and and that top unit really catch fire even if they haven't been particularly good at even strength is there anything that the Blues can actually make any sort of uh, big time adjustment in series here or is it something that they just have to hope goes a different way down the stretch well i think one thing that the blues so far in game four have really done a lot better is they're a lot more aggressive on the four check and what's happened is the the bruins forwards coming back what boston really likes to do on their breakouts is rim the puck around the boards and the one thing you're seeing we're seeing right now is the blues are able to cut down on those pucks and 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 intercept them first and and Bruce Cassidy's in the past talked about how important it is for the Bruins to have that layer of support and once now that the Blues are able to take that option away that really hurts how the Bruins are able to move the puck out of the zone they have players on the back end who aren't particularly good at moving the puck out of course they have uh, the likes of Charlie McAvoy and Tori Crew, but they also have Zidane Chara, Brandon Carlo, a couple guys who aren't particularly fast. I mean, in Carlo's case, he's a good skater, but he just doesn't handle the puck particularly well. So I think from that angle, once the Blues are able to apply and uh, apply more structured and aggressive press, that they're able to hurt the Bruins um, on the breakout. And that, of course, is going to affect how they transition the puck through the neutral zone. And of course, that affects the rush outputs and and the interesting thing from the blues perspective really is if you look at the five on five numbers throughout the entire series st louis has had more of the shots from the inner slot which is the most dangerous part of the offensive zone they've had more offensive zone possession time and they've had more expected goals and you look at the actual goal differential at five on five it's five to five so it's been a very even matchup at even strength and so from the blues perspective if they can keep if they can keep the special teams and have a situation where that is negligible, I think they're in a position where they could actually, as long as they continue to keep the Patrice Bergeron line quieter than usual, that they could actually conceivably win the even strength battle and thus they could come back potentially in the series. Do you think the Blues have a goalie problem at all? No, well, I think... You, a lot of the times throughout the postseason, you see goaltenders ha- having ups and downs. And of course, for Boston, Tuka Rask is the exception. He's put together a historically phenomenal run. And of course, Jordan Bennington hasn't been able to match that. But what goaltender would be able to? I mean, Rask is rocking a 939 save percentage in the postseason. And even you look throughout his his career in the playoffs, a 928 save percentage He's just been so, so dominant and on a level where, honestly, any other goaltender can't really match up. But Jordan Bennington, throughout most of the postseason, the one thing that he's shown you is, yes, he has been shaky at times, especially early in series. 
but the way he's bounced back in all, after each of each of those losses has been phenomenal. I think I can't remember the exact numbers, but um, I saw a tweet on it from TSN where every time every time Bennington has been um, has uh, has lost a game in the postseason, he's come back and put together a, a terrific performance. His numbers have been really good, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But I think from a Blues perspective. Bennington still has to be your guy. Jake Allen was way too inconsistent throughout the regular season. And I think if you look at Bennington's mental makeup, he's the sort of cerebral type where I think from his perspective, it's easier to shake off these situations. And sure, he doesn't have a lot of experience at the NHL level in high stakes situations. But you've seen, for example, someone like Matt Murray in Pittsburgh didn't have a lot of NHL experience at all. And he came in and he took the league by storm. So I wouldn't worry about that too much if I was a Blues fan. What is there anything specific about the Boston Bruins that make their that just kind of differentiates their offensive attack from other teams? Well, I think the 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 key thing that they really addressed at the trade deadline was putting together a, a third line that could chip in more regularly offensively. Of course, that top line with Bergeron, Marchand, and Pasternak has been dominant throughout the entire postseason. But what you've seen now is in times when they're not dictating the pace of play because you know they're getting matched up against the opposition's best players, that you're having guys like Charlie Coyle and Marcus Johansson come up and put together clutch performances. Char- Charlie Coyle, he was quiet in the regular season for the Blue- for the Bruins down the stretch. But he's got eight goals through the postseason now. Marcus Johansson's got 11 points. And so really what they've got now is that secondary scoring. And so that was really, that was the issue. That was one of the concerns heading into the postseason for the Bruins. And they've been able to address that. And, and of course, that second line, David Krejci, Jake DeBrus forming what in, is, in my opinion, one of the most sec- underrated second lines in hockey. I think you've got a, a team that's much more balanced, and and then you look, you fall back onto the fourth line, a really responsible uh, group of guys led by Sean Corrali, who can really wear the opposition down and put together a safe, reliable defensive brand of hockey that allows. Um, the rest of the team to really pick up the the pace of play. So I think from the from the Bruins' perspective, it's really been that secondary scoring that's enabled them to flourish. In addition to, of course, the fantastic performance they've had from Tuka Rask. Well, I'm glad you brought up Rask because obviously he's been great. Um, what is it about him um, that makes him just a just a very very good goalie and really differentiates himself from guys like Bennington? Well, experience, I mean, that has to certainly, like I talked about, for example, in some situations, it's not the most pertinent, um, but he's been there and done it, right? You can't deny. Can we roll out the neck? He's got a crazy neck. Oh, yeah. That's something I always think about with him. I don't understand this neck situation, but it's it's fascinating. It doesn't look real to me, but yes, continue. Yeah, no, I mean, Rask, he has that experience. And I think the one thing that really works in his favor is the fact that you compare him to some of the other some of the other top goaltenders throughout the throughout the league. And and we've seen this term sort of coined in basketball and i'm not sure if this was necessarily intentional or not but load management i mean rask yeah 
only played in in 46 games this season and you compare him to someone like Freddie Anderson who played who had 60 plus starts that's a significant difference and and if you look at into some of the goaltending research that we that we currently have though one thing that's really come into light is if you have goaltenders that haven't had as big of a workload heading into um, the postseason that they tend to sustain their play a, a lot better and and it's trend you're seeing in a lot of different playoff teams. Um, teams are, sort of, are starting to move in that direction where they have 1A, 1B tandems as opposed to a bona fide number one starter. I mean, you look at, for example, the Islanders with Grayson Leonard, um, the Hurricanes with Mrazek and, um, and McElhaney, uh, the Avalanche with Grubauer and Varlamov, the Flames with Riddich and uh, Smith. So that's a direction that the league appears to be trending in. And, and you can't deny that Rask has really looked fresh in the playoffs. It's, it's, there's an element of that. And there's an element also that, that goaltenders can just get hot at the most random times. I mean, we joke in the analytics community that goaltenders can be voodoo. You really can't uh project what you're necessarily going to get out of them and it just so happens that usually the team the goaltender that gets hot at the right time that's the that's the one that tends to go all the way in the playoffs i mean bennington's the perfect example of this right like there's just the hurricanes went through this with multiple goals like it it, like you said it's just it's gonna drive gms insane when they're and also like rask like he has a i I shouldn't say funny i guess but like um sports sports can be mean and cruel and i think the maple leafs trade of rask is one of the crueler things where um raycroft was going to get released by the bruins anyway and they traded for him and gave up Rask in the deal. And it um, just not great, especially if you look at the, the Maple Leafs situation right now. Um, I, I, something tells me uh, Mr. Dubas would uh, prefer to have uh, Rask in, in goal in Toronto. Something tells me that that might be a trade um, years ago he wished uh, his, this franchise did not do. I think he was actually in elementary school when that trade happened, but um not, not a great one for the Maple Leafs. Yeah, uh, of course not. I mean, that's definitely going to pop up as one of the worst trades in their franchise history over the last 15, 20 years. Um, and that's been an issue. Not to, uh, I, I don't want to go down too far this rabbit hole because I know you probably want to stay on topic, but for the Leafs, their, their situation, you talk about load management, they've been too reliant on Freddie Anderson to to pick up the bulk of starts and you've seen it in now three consecutive postseason appearances where he hasn't quite gotten the job done in the postseason despite putting together some excellent regular season results maybe they just need to have like certain teams just need to have like a regular season goalie and then their main goalie only for the playoffs they just hope that they get they get to the playoffs and then their 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 goal is just ready to go for a deep playoff run. More teams should just do that. Just say screw it. We're just going to have a regular season goalie and then a uh, playoff goalie. Um, that would be great. Um, is there one particular matchup um, that you've monitored uh, pretty closely in this series so far? Well, I'm not sure if there's one in particular, but for the for the Blues, it really is imperative that for the season that they continue to shut that um, Patrice Bergeron line down when they, when they get going there, 
it, it doesn't need to really be said they're the best line in hockey. And so for them to really continue to be able to dictate the dictate the terms at even strength, they've got to they've got to keep that matchup on lockdown because through the rest of the lineup, again, I, I like the Bruins second and third lines, but I also like the Blues second and third lines. And so once you get into that, once you, if you can effectively neutralize Boston's first line, then you're in a really advantageous position as far as taking the series over at five on five and i mean if you look back at for example the leaf series they the toronto did all they could they threw the john Tavares uh line out there with mitch marner and zach hyman they had jake muzzin and nikita zaitsev and for the most part they did an okay job of course they got burned because they the austin matthews line was was their issue because once they neutralized the the bergeron line well i shouldn't say neutralized they minimized the damage their second line didn't take advantage i mean any line with matthews on it should theoretically out um out produce the Krejci line but they didn't get it done and we we could have an entire podcast and why that was but the fact of the matter is from the blues perspective they've got to continue to keep that matchup on lockdown and and credit to them for sticking sticking with it so far but again you you look at what happened in game three that does worry you a little bit even if it is them just getting rolling on the power play typically when they get when they get going in one format it usually doesn't bode well for the rest of the series Last thing on the series, then we'll move on. Um, how do you see it unfolding? What is uh, your what is, what's your gut telling you for this series? Well, it's not a particularly hot take, but this is really a must win for St. Louis because they they cannot afford to go down three games to one heading over to uh, heading over to Boston, especially considering the Bruins are going to have home ice advantage for any potential game seven. So they absolutely have to win game four tonight. And uh, it, it really is going to be an interesting matchup. I personally just think that the cards are stacked in the Bruins' favor. Just, I just, there, there seems to be between Rask's, Rask's goaltending, the, the third line getting fantastic production when through the regular season they really struggled in that facet. Um, Zidane Chara is still somehow holding up even if he's uh, dramatically slowed down. It just seems like this is the Bruins' year, and for from St. Louis's perspective, it really is going to be hard to slow the the Bruins' power play down. I mean, you look at throughout the entire postseason, no matter what PK unit has been thrown out there, the Bruins have just dominated the special teams, and that's really what separated them compared to other teams. So unless the unless St. Louis can somehow from this point moving forward be really disciplined and i'm sure craig berube is going to be on going to be on that ball that i definitely give the advantage to boston in this one so you're saying as much as it as much as it hurts me (laughs) yes um if st louis were to uh go down three games to one heading back to boston they might be feeling blue yeah is uh yeah (laughs) yeah. Uh, well, I had a good run on this podcast, but it all had to come crashing down at some point. Um, what do you make? Uh, we haven't talked about the Leafs uh, much on this podcast, but we have to do some Leafs stuff because just you, you have to talk about Toronto. Center and, of and the hockey summer. universe and all that. At right? all times. Yeah. Yes. 
Um, what do you make of uh, Zaitsev wanting a trade? I think it's personal. If by everything I've read, it's like they're going to acquiesce um, to his... I don't even want to say demand because it just... it's Demand's just like a different... A request. I feel like, yeah, there is a difference and he has made a request. And um, they're already gearing up for a weird summer. What do you make of um, his request and where do you think he ends up going? Well, I think this plays really perfectly into the Leaf situation because... They're in a real grave situation as far as the salary cap moving moving into this offseason. They've only got $8.7 million in space, if you like it cap-friendly, and that doesn't take into, into account um, potential extensions for Mitch Marner, which he alone is probably going to eat up at least 9 to $10 million of that. And he's not taking a discount by yeah. all accounts. It's like, no, they're, he's like, you're going to have to pay me. Yeah, exactly. And then beyond that, they've... They've got Andreas Janssen and Kasperi Kapanen. and those are um, really important players in Toronto's top six that they're going to want to keep. And so they something needs to give in this situation for them to have that salary cap space to keep the keep the core together. And you look at Zaitsev; he's been he's sort of been pigeonholed into this defensive shutdown role and. For most of the last couple of seasons under Mike, Mike Babcock, he hasn't really thrived in that role. He was a bit better when Jake Muzzin came over from the LA Kings uh, at the trade deadline, but or sorry, a month prior to the trade deadline. But I think that speaks more towards Muzzin's play than it does to Zaitsev's because I think you, you parse through his underlying profile, Zaitsev really struggles to move the puck. Um, he... He isn't very good at defending on the rush. He his his offensive um, the offensive side of his game, which in his rookie season he had 36 points. I think again, if you if you look deeper into what really drove that production, part of it was was power play driven, which he hasn't been on um, the man advantage since, and the fact that he racked up quite a bit of secondary assists, which aren't very repeatable. Which is to say. 36 points wasn't really representative of the type of offensive value he has. So I think you consider all that Zaitsev just isn't a, a top four defenseman. And as weak as Toronto is on the right side, and as much as this really would exacerbate the need to acquire a right-handed defenseman, Zaitsev just hasn't been able to get the job done for them. And, and he would clear a lot of salary cap space if they found a way to move him. It should be interesting to see what they do here, but it certainly seems like he's going to get moved. Um, you touched on this a little bit, but is there any real way that Dubas can really get around this kind of cap issue, or is it just something? This is just their their reality for the foreseeable future. Well, I think the the real stickler in this whole process is the Patrick Marlowe contract because he only has one year left. You look. You, you try and jump ahead to the 2020 offseason, the picture isn't as grim. It seems okay. And odds are that they're going to have to let, for for example, Jake Gardner walk. Like, I just can't conceivably see a situation where he can, where they can afford to keep him. But if they're able to move Zaitsev and uh, Patrick Marlowe, well, then that's $10 plus million right there that, that they've cleared. 
And from that perspective, once you get Nathan Horton back on the long-term injured reserve, then I can see a situation where they can keep Kapanen and Janssen. Perhaps they re-sign one of those guys and then flip them in a trade to try and acquire a defenseman. Maybe they try and move Nassim Kadri for a defenseman. But if they're the, the key really is in Toronto's ability to move on from Zaitsev and Marlowe. I think the Zaitsev contract... It really is rough for the type of player he is, but I think if there's one thing we've really, really learned about NHL GMs is that they really, for some reason, value their they their evaluation system for players is really dependent a lot on ice time. And by that token, I mean Zaitsev's played a prominent role for the Leafs. It it, uh, it it's of course worth mentioning that he hasn't done it particularly well, but. The situation that they're in, I think there there are enough GMs out there that aren't particularly statistically inclined that the Leafs would be able to move um, move Zaitsev in his contract without having to give up a sweetener, and it only it only helps the Leafs' cause that Zaitsev has asked for um, asked out because that gives them plausible deniability for aggressively shopping him. Because I think regardless of if Zaitsev had requested that, that trade or not, that Dubis would have, um, he would have tried to move that contract out, especially because he wasn't the one that signed it. It was, it was uh, of course, Lou Lamorello. And if, even if you historically look at the type of players that Dubis has, has coveted and valued, he's talked a lot going back to many years ago when he was in OHL GM, talked about how he really hasn't been a fan of quote-unquote safe players who flip pucks um, up off glasses and out. The, the type of players that maybe coaches like a lot more, but Dubis is the type of GM he's analytically inclined. I don't see him as a as being particularly fond of uh, of a Zaitsev's game, so I think if they can move him and Saitsa or and Marlowe's situation is a bit complicated because of course he has that uh no move clause, so he'd have to or no trade clause, so he'd have to waive for well, wherever he goes. But if if they can manage to move both those contracts, I think they're in a pretty fine position moving into this offseason. Are you at all worried about their future or no? No. Well I think you you look at the building blocks that they have uh, i mean every team i guess i should say like worried in the sense that like they have to pay a lot of people they have to juggle a lot of good players and like just the you've seen this go different ways in different sports where like they've drafted so well and they've done some stuff so well that like you can't pay everybody and like i don't think they're gonna get in the oklahoma city thing where it's just like okay we have to trade hard because we can't keep all three of these guys but I do wonder with teams like Toronto, I think it's interesting because they do have to manage a lot of top guy personalities and all this other stuff like Tampa Bay is going to be dealing with that um, because people just assume they're going to be great forever. (laughs) And it's like maybe, but some stuff happens and some guys want out and some things just um, don't work out. I I don't know. I just, I'm not saying I think that's going to happen with the lease, but they do have guys they have to pay. They have personalities to manage and um there's also just a lot of pressure on them to win right now and obviously that just hasn't happened and they still have to get over a major hump and if they did if they go through that same issue next year like uh, i i I don't know it's just we know that market we know how uh the fan how much the fans are chomping at the bit for this team to get over that hump and really get into um this next level but also i don't even really like get mad at them this year because of just the dumb playoff system that the NHL is 
instituted. It's, I don't know. There's a lot of different variables going on here, but that is something that um, I, I just wonder, um, is it something we need to monitor under the surface here a little bit? Well, I think that's the case for many NHL teams right now because, of course, you mentioned the Tampa Bay Lightning, and there are there are other teams that are approaching a situation where they're going to be in trouble cap wise. The uh, Washington Capitals, to um, maybe not this off season, but next off season, they've got to pay Nicholas Backstrom and Braden Holpe, and that's going to spell a lot of trouble. Um, you look at the Vegas Golden Knights; they're in a bit of cap limbo as well. They're uh, the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, there are just quite a few teams right now. It's a good problem to have, really. I mean, of course, you, you have all these good players and, and you want to pay all of them. And ideally, you'd want to keep the whole band. But the the one thing that really, from Toronto's perspective, that you like is you look at the prospect pipeline. And at least on the back end, they've got a couple names that could conceivably um, come up and play prominent roles within the next couple seasons between Rasmus Sandin and Timothy Lilligren. So I think if one of those guys can be a top four NHL defender, then that really helps them out. And drafting moving forward is going to be so key for the Leafs because you need those entry-level contributors that right out of the draft they can play three years for dirt cheap and be legitimate contributors and that's what you've sort of seen from toronto um they've played it placed a huge emphasis on finding talent um in non-traditional ways as well you look at for example signing someone like trevor moore um, out of the ncaa and he's he looked awesome on toronto's fourth line and he's someone who's probably going to stop uh, step up into a top nine role next year so you need con- contributions from guys that um, are being paid dirt cheap and and so i think you you step back and you look at the leafs position they've still they've still got their core locked down right they've got math uh, they've got matthews Tavares, nylander marner's gonna sign and then you look at the back end, Morgan Riley, got Freddie Anderson. I think they're still in a very, very strong position. And cap-wise, I don't see them having to do too much juggling beyond this offseason. Because again, once the Marlowe contract is off the books, then that opens up a ton of room. And you, you, and you know the cap is going to uh, come up. Their biggest challenge this offseason is going to be finding a way to acquire top four defensemen. And for for the right side, and that's going to be really where you see the pressure heat up, and it's going to be interesting which avenue they pursue because they do have a few trade chips they could dangle. They have Andreas Janssen, Kasperi Kapanen, Asim Kadri. They they have a few prospects, not a lot, but it's that's to me is really going to be the interesting storyline to follow with the Leafs this this off season. Where are they going to go with the blue line? Because that is their biggest question mark moving forward but in the grand scheme of things they've set themselves up to be contenders for quite a long while and that's the most important thing you set yourself up a a long runway of contention because the washington examples washington capital serve as a perfect example of this wherein that you you need many years of contention because the play the playoffs can often be such a crapshoot and so you need to have i mean the sharks are probably the best example of this right yeah well i mean you uh, i was more looking at washington this is a successful example of having. i was gonna say like they but it took a really long time i mean maybe that's good news for the sharks is eventually they'll get there and i mean they're getting closer and closer but yeah I mean, and of course um, you look at Tampa, i think the second even. i think they have the second most amount of wins in like the last 15 years right yeah 
yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty sad because that's a group in San Jose that's put together. I mean, they've had a great management team. They've drafted and developed very well. They've made some very bold trades that have worked out. I mean, the Joe Thornton one, Brent Burns, Eric Carlson. They, Vander Kane. Maybe not in the same class because they did give up <laughs> significant pieces for that. But the other ones were, yeah. I mean, they were, they were home run trades. So that's just a situation where, I mean, that maybe they're cursed or something. <laughs> I don't know. It seems kind of reminds me of the, of, I mean, we thought that about the Capitals until they, until they won. Um, I, yeah, I, that's good I the Sharks, yeah. it's got to be extremely frustrating for the Sharks oh, fans and their yeah. staff and everything else. It, it, it's got to suck. Um, who do you think the Ducks should hire as their next head coach? Is it going to be the the farm system guy who has just a great college football name, but um, seems like by all indications the cheap option and a lot of these teams are kind of going this route, like the Stars and uh, just the, the Rangers and other teams like that, where are they going to go the unproven, um, just kind of young, intriguing name who can help develop their young guys? But my thing with the Ducks, it's like they don't really have any young building blocks right now. There are no superstars in their system, so it's like, who is he really developing? Because the the Ducks don't have a terrible farm system. It's just extremely average by all indications, and they just don't seem to have like any young potential superstars there right now. Well, I think if you if you look at the Ducks situation, I'm actually more bullish on their crop of forwards than most. Um, I, okay. I I like. For example, I, I'm a huge fan of guys like Sam Steele and Andre Kasha. And uh, we'll see what happens with Max Jones, but he's not a bad prospect either. But I think when you're anytime you're talking about a rebuilding team, the the biggest emphasis really should be on the development of the young players. And I think you, you look at Dallas Eakins' track record with the San Diego Goals. Yes, the their their farm team has been performance wise they've been pretty good but the most important thing that i really look at is the prospects that Eakin, uh Eakins has really developed that have gone on and graduated to playing um prominent roles in the nhl i mean shea theodore brandon montour uh, sam Steele came up for a little while and looked great jacob larson i mentioned andre kasha and then you even look at yeah, back going back to his days as the head coach of the Marlies, he was really instrumental in the, de- in the development of Nazem Kadri, who people forget was heavily maligned after being a top pick for the Leafs. So I think that really the development aspect is going to be huge for the Ducks moving forward. And so that's where I think Eakins really has that unique, personable approach that makes him a very valuable teacher. And I know people will will point to his rough year and a half leading a young Oilers team. And I think context is really important for that one. I mean, it's been well documented how Edmonton's locker room was out of control with, you know, players dogging in and practice and the whole party mentality. And Eakins in the aftermath has reflected on the experience and talked about how he really strayed away from his core principles because he really is a, um, the, the type of coach who uh, he, he's, he's got the carrot, not the stick kind of uh, mentality. And so he was forced into a situation where he had to establish order and that doesn't really suit his persona. And I think that was just a situation that wasn't really a right match. But I think you look at a Ducks team that has a pretty good leadership in in place led by someone like Ryan Getzlaff and Corey Perry, and you have those veteran leaders 
on that team already. And of course, by all accounts, the Ducks have been run from top to bottom as an organization pretty well over the last few years. I think Eakins would do well in that sort of situation, especially when you consider he's an innovator who presents new ideas. And I think he'd just be an overall massive upgrade on Randy Carlisle, who is well beyond his NHL expiry date. And I mean, so for, for me, he would be the an ideal candidate because I look elsewhere around the league and, and you look at some of the other coaching options. I don't see a lot of intriguing names. You've already seen the... Who's the worst guy they could hire? Um, I'm not sure about the worst guy, but I mean, some of the guys that... Some of the other coaching candidates that seem to pop up, guys like Rick Bonus and, and Lane Lambert, uh, I'm not a huge fan of them, if I'm being quite honest. The one that's really intriguing to me, and I'm not sure where I stand on this just because I don't know a ton about him, is Scott Sandlin. Again, head coach of the University of Minnesota, Duluth. And so he's won back-to-back NCAA crowns. And so the precedent has been set where NCAA coaches can come straight to the NHL head coaching gigs. I mean, if you look at Dave Haxtell in um, in Philadelphia, who, of course, was fired, but more recently, Jim Montgomery, uh, who squeezed uh, quite the season out from what I believe is a stale Dallas Stars roster, or, or even um, Quinn, uh, Alan Quinn in uh, New York. So I think... That's really an interesting proposition where I appreciate that teams aren't just looking through the same recycling bin of former NHL coaches. And I think you saw, like to me, the top NHL coaches that I would have wanted this offseason are at this point all off the board. I mean, Elaine Vigneault, uh, Joel Quenville, and then... uh, that's what's so weird is this is taking so long that's why people i guess assume it's going to be dallas right yeah just because it's taken so long and they waited for the season to end that's yeah and even ralph Kruger in buffalo who i thought is an excellent um outside of the box thinker brings a new perspective so i think you really the the head coaching market has really thinned out even you look at who ottawa hired in dj smith that really i'm not that's not a great hire, to be quite honest. So I think right now, Dallas Eakins is probably the best out of what's otherwise a mediocre group of candidates. Yeah, well, get excited, Ducks fans. Everything's great. Um, <laughs> last thing, and then we'll wrap up here. Uh, Phil Kessel, what is his trade value? He's been in the league 37 years. He's the least athletic good hockey player I've ever seen in my life. He's kind of a cult hero at this point in a lot of landing spots, but um, but this is a two-parter. What is the best landing spot for him, and how do you see his trade value uh, working out this summer? Well, I think there are a couple, first of all, trade spots, teams that could be interested. The one thing to keep in mind is Kessel has a modified no-trade clause where he submits a list of eight teams, so he essentially can control his destination to... Uh, a pretty significant extent and I think that was pretty evident when you hear about the trade to the Minnesota Wild that was next I mean I thought that would have been a fantastic acquisition for the for the Penguins to be able to get rid of uh, Jack Johnson's contract as well and bring in someone and Jason Zucker who in my opinion is extremely underrated but right now I think you do have to factor in that Kessel has that degree of control especially when you have that a team list you can easily go okay um you can put teams on that list who of course aren't gonna 
be interested in Kessel. I mean, you throw out, for example, say the Toronto Maple Leafs, they're never going to be interested in trading for Phil Kessel. If he puts them on their list, well, then the Penguins have one less team to work work on. And he could do the same. He could pitch out Boston. He could pitch out, you know, uh, um, a rival in the Philadelphia Flyers, throw out a couple of rebuilding teams like the Vancouver Canucks and the Anaheim Ducks onto his list. And all of a sudden, he's got a group of two or three teams that he that the penguins are essentially handcuffed into looking at but i think one destination that would mutually make sense is uh arizona because of course they're really desperate for high-end offensive producers and they certainly have made life difficult for themselves even more by trading away max domi and dylan strom and and from castle's perspective that's a destination that he is, per, is seems to be enamored to play in, considering that he likes playing for Rick Tockett, who um, is one of the coaches over there. And so from, from that perspective, that would be a really interesting fit. Um, another, in my opinion, dark horse one would be Dallas, because they've got quite a bit of cap space. They could even take take on Jack Johnson's contract, which from Pittsburgh's perspective is really important given that they're right up against it. And for Dallas, they he could Kessel could really be that replacement for Matt Zuccarello, who they acquired at the deadline. And that's important because if they re-sign Zuccarello, they have to give up that conditional first round pick to the Rangers. And so they of course would get to keep that and as far as his value, this is a really interesting one because on the surface, he's got you know 82 points last year, 92 years, uh, 92 points the year before. So he's a bona fide offensive pr- producer. But if you dissect his two-way profile, he's one of the worst defensive players in the league. And so while he creates a ton offensively, he's also giving up a lot going back the other way. And I'm not sure how much teams really take that into consideration when evaluating Phil Kessel because typically points have been the most important um, most important evaluation tool for NHL teams. And of course, something that mitigates his value is the fact that Kessel's 31 years old and carries a, a very high $8 million um, cap hit. So logistically it really narrows the field of teams that are going to be interested and ultimately with the minnesota trade next i just i i think that the trade value on the surface if if the penguins pull the trigger is is not going to be it's it's going to seem underwhelming at first glance i mean even you, you look at arizona i can't see them parting ways with the top prospect like barrett hayton it would probably have to be one of their depth roster pieces, um, first round pick, that kind of stuff. Sort of scrapping together um, more quantity rather than quality pieces. And I think Dallas could perhaps make a little bit more sense. Maybe the Stars are, are okay giving up Ty Delandria, who was their for first round pick last season. Maybe they, if not him, maybe they can build a package around Radic Faxa, who's. A uh, pretty underrated two-way center, although Penguins acquired Jared McCann um, and Nick Bukestad, who provide that center depth. But it's going to be a really interesting, interesting situation to monitor. I just don't see the Penguins being able to extract a ton of value in this situation. But they're also in a situation where 
it's been well documented the the run-ins he the, that Kessel has had with head coach Mike Sullivan and it, it just uh, it just seems like the the type of situation where both sides are kind of ready to move on. Yeah, and that's what's so interesting about the the Penguin situation over the next couple of years is that this is a group that has been together for a long time now, right? Like that was part of the reason they've just kind of um, subsided a little bit in the playoffs is that like they just had these long runs after long runs and it's a good problem to have. They won several titles this way, but it does add up, right? The mileage that all of their good superstars have. I mean, he won two titles. Like he can go wherever, like you can go take a risk in Dallas. Like you said, it's like who it, he doesn't really have anything else to prove and he doesn't have to go ring chasing and everything else. Um, I do wonder if we're going to start to see more, um, bigger names from Pittsburgh start uh, evaporating over the next year or two, just because those guys have just been there for so long now and have just so much tread on the tires that they might just eventually have to shake things up quicker than people expect. Yeah, I mean, I think the the moves that Jim Rutherford made have, after winning the back-to-back cups, have really been perplexing. I mean, you look back at the Ryan Reeves trade giving up... Um, giving up that first round pick to the blues for Ryan Reeves. And of course they got back uh, a late second coming back, which mitigates some of that value. But he, he sort of changed his philosophy where what really made the penguins thrive and succeed as a, as a team was the whole speed and skill mantra. And Rutherford sort of has deviated from that in years past. He has sort of deviated that from that in recent times bringing in Ryan Reeves as sort of that player to quote-unquote like protect some of the star players, which didn't work out, and, and he was shipped out to Vegas. And then you look at the Jack Johnson signing, that that had disaster written on it, all like, literally from day one. Johnson hasn't been uh, a meaningful on-ice contributor for a very long time. He was a, a scratch in Columbus even, and... And I think a big part of that was the fact that him and Sidney Crosby are really close buddies. And <laughs> right away from year one, predictably, that contract has been a disaster. And then trading for Eric at Branson at the deadline, another situation where you've got a guy who you're chasing physical attributes more than the speed and skill that made Pittsburgh um, – that made Pittsburgh so successful. And I think you look at what happened in that Islanders series, uh, Islander series, that was just a core that looked really stale. And so they, they definitely do need to shake things up. I mean, their back end really is their biggest area of need. And up front, it's going to be really interesting because we, we, we've seen a couple of really big names from Pittsburgh floated now between Phil Castle and, of course, Evgeny Malkin who he could be another example of a, of a player who is sort of getting up there in age and could perhaps be wielded to bring back big pieces, younger uh, younger talent to, to try and clear some salary cap space and reintroduce um, some use to that core because what you look at what reinvigorated them to win the back-to-back titles. It was the ability for the Penguins to have ELC contributors, guys coming in and they, they were drafted, developed down in the minors. They have a great uh, program down there and they were able to get Jake Gensel and Connor Sheary. But of course, you know, 
the the eventually that's the thing you you've got to have a constant flux of these players coming up in your system because eventually well now Jake Gensel has got his big boy contract Connor Sheary needed his and he was shipped out to Buffalo so it's going to be really interesting to see how Jim Rutherford is able to navigate the offseason and from his perspective it's going to be really important to try and try and uh, clear some salary cap space and add some youth well, it's going to be interesting to see what they do. A lot of interesting situations in the NHL this summer with a lot of teams that have been very good for a long time, and we're going to see how uh, the GMs kind of operate here. Um, but, Harmon, this has been fantastic. I always learn a lot when you come on this podcast, so I appreciate it as always, sir. Um, have a good summer. We're going to talk, I think, beforehand. Um, if you would like to come back on, you, you're Absolutely. always welcome. You're officially in the circle. Um, the, <laughs> the ones that can count on and know that he can, you can deliver. So I appreciate that, uh, sir. And is there anything we need to check out from you before we get out of here? Uh, well, you can just find me on Twitter at uh, H-A-R-M-A-N-D-A-Y-A-L-2. That's at Harman Dial 2. Um, and as far as my work, I am a Canucks contributor for The Athletic Vancouver. And currently, I'm also doing draft coverage, prospect profiles for next-gen hockey. And that's about it. All right. Well, go check out his work. He's very good at what he does. And he's... Uh, 19 years old, which still just insane. But anyway, Harmon, thank you as always, sir. And I will talk to you soon. Thanks for having me on, man. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. I uh, just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate if you could take a second, leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple podcast listener, Remember, you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com, where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Uh, thank you for your support, and we will be back another episode very soon. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Finally, a bed that senses snoring and automatically responds. Meet the Ergo Smart Base from Tempur-Pedic, our first system that detects snoring then automatically adjusts by raising the bed. And now, during the Tempur-Pedic Summer of Sleep, all Tempur-Pedic mattresses are on sale, with savings up to $500 on adjustable sets. Get your best sleep. All night, every night. Learn more at TempurPedic.com.